Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State in the Jewish State. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from voices covering a snapshot of the very best of Israel in this day and age, the startup nation as computational biology turns science fiction into reality in medicine, and military affairs, how strategy can affect today's events. I've made some really good friends in making Johnny Gould's Jewish State, one of them the estimable Colonel Richard Kemp, formerly commander of British forces in Afghanistan and member of the Joint Intelligence Committee and National Crisis Management Group, COBRA. We've been in touch ever since we first met last year and found out we'd both be in Israel at the same time and to get together if we possibly could. It's so interesting to hear how the impact of where one conducts one's interviews really affects the perspective. Our first interview, episode 22, in Richard's Officers Club in his hometown of Colchester, was a reflection on his whole career and how his time in the army tallies with the world today. If you haven't heard it yet, scroll down the list of episodes on catch-up. But this time... We were in Tel Aviv, right next to the soon-departing United States Embassy, heading to Israel's capital city of Jerusalem. So many questions for the colonel. Donald Trump's deal of the century was just revealed. Under this vision, Jerusalem will remain Israel's undivided, very important, undivided capital. But that's no big deal, because I've already done that for you, right? And in the weeks after the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the major general at the top of the regime, should Israel be bracing itself for an attack from Iranian proxies? Only the night before, Richard had met two Muslim Arab soldiers in the IDF. There are currently 123 from this background in the Israeli military. Their bravery and courage in doing so is discussed. And of course, we were both in Israel as Britain declared itself independent of the European Union. And that is where our conversation began. I'm absolutely delighted once again to uh, speak to Colonel Richard Kemp, but here in Tel Aviv in Israel, uh, that we should meet for a second time actually in the state of Israel is is quite poignant at the time, of course, of Brexit. Well, it's it's fantastic to see you again, and it's particularly fantastic to see you here in Tel Aviv where... It's a beautiful, warm, sunny day, even in the middle of winter in Israel. Um, But yes, we're we're in one of the countries that um, once a year celebrates its independence from the UK, and there are many of those around the world, but now we can join them in celebrating our independence just a few days ago from the EU. I heard Lionel Barber, the outgoing FT editor, say that Britain could look at Israel as the potential model for the economy moving forward. And I'm wondering how apposite he thinks those words might be because there could never be a European Union here. There couldn't be a euro. There couldn't be free movement. It would be the end of the state of Israel as we know it. So, you know, here is Israel, a willful um, uh, independent nation against a country who cannot collude with really any other nation. I think think in the case of Israel, it's a, 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 a real bonus. And we've seen an incredible development in this country since, well, not not just since 1948, but before that as well, when the Jews began coming here in larger numbers in the end of the um, 19th century and early part of the 20th century. And particularly since 1948, when the State of Israel was recreated, we've seen 
an incredible level of development in, in every area of their society, whether it be technology, whether it be the economy, whether it's defence, whatever it is, everything in every area. Um, and it's, it's all been done in the face of immense hostility, of frequent wars, frequent conflicts, invasions from every direction, a long, long-standing terrorist campaign, abuse throughout the, the media, a slur campaign launched from the Arab world but then spreading across to the West. And meanwhile, they've, they've flourished, prospered and prevailed in a way that I don't think any other country in the world ever has. So we've got a lot, I think, to learn from the State of Israel, with whom, of course, we enjoy the most cordial relations. We, we have a very strong trading relation with Israel today, but also we have among the closest intelligence and defence relationships of any two countries in the world. Richard, just before the tape rolled, we talked about the irony of being under attack constantly actually is the grist of nation-building. The fact that Israel's ingenuity in its people responds to the worst adversity to create institutions which deal with these attacks in a way that no other country does. I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and a, a, a kind of a unifying... Um, effect across the whole country is military service which everybody undertakes men women um, and and have done since the recreation of the state and that has an amazing effect both in terms of um, of work ethic discipline um, learning to live with each other teamwork leadership all of these things as well as the incredible network that it establishes and I think that many people have have who know a great deal more about it than I do, have shown how that universal military service has been hugely beneficial to the development of the State of Israel outside of the forces. Um, and very often people in Britain and other European countries talk about reintroducing national service for that very reason. Um, I don't think it would really apply in the UK unless, you know, short of a, an all-out war. But certainly it's worked wonders for Israel. I'm sure that the Israeli people would much rather live in peace and not have to have universal military service. But uh, every, every cloud has a silver lining, as they say. Yes, I've um, worked recently with a producer. He was just doing his annual national service, so he'd left his company for a few weeks. And he told me in his history that he fought in one of the Gaza wars... Um, and my British response was, oh, and he, and he basically shrugged his shoulders as if to sort of push it away. Ah, oh, you know, it's just, it's fine, it's one of those things. I don't know what he did or what he saw, I'm certainly not going to ask him, but this is a young boy, mm. half my age. And, and, and the, the level of experience of, of extreme situations that I've... Um, heard about talking to people who served in the IDF and you just have to think about some of the political leaders and what they've been through you know pretty much every political leader has served in the forces and in some cases have done extraordinary things going right the way back of course to David Ben-Gurion the first Prime Minister who served as a private in the British Army during the First World War um, but and, you know, on, on that sort of broad topic I, I, I had the real privilege yesterday of meeting two people who people most people outside Israel haven't got a clue about, which is um, Muslim Arabs that are serving in the IDF. There's quite a few of them, not, not vast numbers, but there's quite a few. When you, when you look at the circumstances in which they serve, it's quite remarkable. And they're incredibly brave young men and women who take enormous risks 
in order to serve and protect and defend the state of Israel, which, unlike non-Muslim, non-Arab Israelis, it's voluntary for them. They don't have to do it. And presumably they face being ostracized by their friends and family in doing so. Well, one of them that I was speaking to of the two yesterday, his mother, um, I think his mother is his only parent that's alive. His mother effectively disowned him for a year and then they had a kind of reconciliation. Um, The other one, um, his family completely isolated and cut him off. He comes from a a very nasty community in East Jerusalem, very anti-Israel, very hostile. Um, And his parent cut him off um, and his family completely cut him off. Uh, which isn't surprising because they themselves, of course, had his military service come to the attention of the community in general. They they would have been subject to hate and pro- and possibly attack and death themselves. So um, the, these are the circumstances in which they live, and I think it's it's absolutely admirable that there are some young men and women prepared to step forward and stand up to to protect the country that does actually protect them, whether they're Muslims or Jews or Arabs or whatever they are. Richard, let's talk about the deal of the century, uh, Donald Trump's rather understated title of his own plan to bring peace to the Middle East. And there's been an awful lot of commentary, but perhaps the most apposite one, and cloaked in words which are challenging, is that of Caroline Glick. Um, And she says the Trump plan finally buries the Oslo blood libel, she calls it, but Israel needs to apply its sovereignty to its communities in Judea and Samaria, some would say the West Bank, and the Jordan Valley, if it wants to ensure this great accomplishment isn't written on water. And the discussion she has is that it now, after the disaster of the Oslo Accords, instead of forcing Israel to prove that it wants peace, it is now saying to the failing or failed Palestinian leadership, it's now up to you guys you've got four years. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is an ultimatum to them, in effect. I think it's a fantastic move made by President Trump and the US administration. And I've met many of the people involved in, um, in actually bringing it into fruition, which includes Jason Greenblatt, who was President Trump's um, chief negotiator on the Middle East, and um, David Friedman, the ambassador here in American ambassador here in, in Israel, no longer in Tel Aviv, now in Jerusalem. Um, and they've done, I think they've done an incredible job at this. And we, we all need really, in my opinion, we in, in Europe um, need to get behind this deal. And Britain has already, I think, been quite sympathetic towards it, quite positive, um, as has France and Poland, uh, one or two other countries as well. We now need to see the whole of the EU forming up behind it because... This deal is not something that the Palestinians will support. They rejected it a thousand times. No, it was uh, Abbas's response to it, even before it was published. And since then, he's done everything he can to to rally the Arab world in their rejection of it. And we saw the Arab League recently standing up and saying they condemned it, despite the fact that uh, eight Arab countries in previous days have effectively supported it, and three of which, Bahrain, Oman and the UAE, had ambassadors present uh, at the ceremony in the White House when President Trump um, announced it. So it's despite all that, it's, it, you know, the, the, the Palestinians' leadership is not going to get behind it either now or in four years' time, in my opinion, uh, unless they're coerced into doing so. And I think coercion is necessary, and that coercion needs to come primarily from Arab countries out here. 
it also does need to come from the West. The Palestinian Authority can't really continue to exist effectively without support from Arab countries and support from the West, from Europe and the United States. Um, and, and pressure needs to be put on them to, 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 to go along with this deal because it's the one thing, in my opinion, it's the one opportunity now, uh, and it's the most realistic peace proposals ever been made over this problem here. Um, but it's the one thing that will potentially, potentially uh, improve the standard of living for the Palestinian people. They're the, they're the people above all who suffer from Palestinian leadership's intransigence, which has gone on since 1937. The first proposal for a two-state solution, in effect, was made by the Peel Commission in Britain in 1937, rejected by the Arab leadership, and they've consistently rejected these moves ever since. The US Secretary of State is visiting later today. President Trump's latest Middle East peace plan is not a peace plan. It will annex Palestinian territory, lock in illegal Israeli colonisation, transfer Palestinian citizens of Israel and deny Palestinian people their fundamental rights. When the government meets with the US Secretary of State later today, will he make it clear that the British government will stand for a genuine, internationally backed peace plan rather than this stuff proposed by Trump yesterday? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, let's be clear, this is a problem that has bedeviled the world for, for decades and the Middle East, of course, in particular. No peace plan is perfect, but this has the merit of a two-state solution. It is a two-state solution. It would ensure that Jerusalem is both the capital of Israel and of the Palestinian people. And I urge him rather than being so characteristically negative, to reach out to his friends, my friends, our friends in, in the Palestinian Authority, to Mahmoud Abbas, for whom I have the highest respect, and urge him for once to engage uh, with this initiative, to get talking rather than to leave a political vacuum. Jeremy Corbyn has the greatest respect for President Abbas and those in the Palestinian and Authority. Abbas I've met this morning many. has started his boycott. Uh, which means that farmers on the Israeli side, their living is now going to be affected. But a boycott on their side is a bit of the point here because there's a third way between war and peace, and it's divorce. So actually, if the Palestinians' response is to withdraw or blockade or cut off themselves from America, the great Satan and the little Satan of Israel actually... That's rather the point, isn't it? Yeah, it is very much the point. Um, and I think I think there are, I think there are two, I mean, to me there are two um, two fundamental um, issues in relation to this deal which are uh, to be applauded above all. And one of the, one of them is is the matter of security. Uh, and security has obviously been put right at the very top of priorities in by those people that drew up this deal. And that includes, of course, um, Israel exercising sovereignty over the Jordan Valley, which is effectively Israel's frontier and always will be Israel's frontier against potential aggression from outside the, uh, the country. Uh, and so it's, it's always been necessary for Israel to control the Jordan Valley, and this effectively gives the green light and the thumbs up for them to do so. And equally, to be given um, sovereignty over many other areas within the West Bank and security control over all areas within the West Bank and the fact that that's occurred is I think a, a real plus and it's resulted in that this the whole carving up of the West Bank area has resulted in a, uh, a network of tunnels, road 
uh, you know, secured roads, etc., which make the whole thing look a bit untidy. But what's the reason for it? It's all designed to avoid checkpoints. Why are the checkpoints there? Because of constant, incessant Palestinian terrorism against Israelis. Um, so th- these these measures are all designed to guard the state of Israel against aggression, either from the Palestinian community, whether it's in Gaza or the West Bank, or from outside. Uh, and the second area, I think, the second key area is um, a stand made by this deal against uh, the the political warfare campaign that's been raised against Israel, effectively telling the world and, and perpetuating a myth that Israel are illegal occupiers in the West Bank and even in Gaza, which they're no longer present in. Um, and they're constructing illegal settlements. Well, this this uh, deal dismisses that idea totally by the most powerful nation in the world saying that Israel has a right to that territory, it has a legal right to that territory, and Israel's concession is that it's prepared to give up, and you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the guy who wants to take over from him, Benny Gantz, both of them accepted these, the, uh, the deal by which Israel agrees to give up some of it, its territory to a Palestinian state, and it is its territory. It was, you know, right from the beginning, despite the slur campaigns, despite the lies spewed out by the United Nations and others, this West, West Bank, Gaza, all of this, this area is actually Israeli sovereign territory. I just want to say two things. First, that the deal of the century is the opportunity of a century, and we're not going to pass it by. Uh, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Today, I repeat, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for the state of Israel. You've been the greatest friend that Israel has had in the White House. And I think tomorrow we can continue making history. Thank you, Good. Mr. President. I look forward to it. Thank you. If the Palestinians can't agree to this framework, at least, or inside the negotiation, there's four years, and then Israel can annex what it needs to for its own security in Judea, Samaria, if I understand the document correctly. Four years implies that this is going to take us to the lame duck part of the second term of Donald Trump's presidency. Do you think that's the reason for the time span? Yeah, I think I think that, that, that Donald Trump and his, his key advisors, when they started on this process, this peace process, which m- many people said they shouldn't be doing because it's pointless, um, and, and it's really a waste of political capital, um, they they took the view, as I understand it, they took the view that uh, after President Trump's term of office ends, whether it's one or two terms, that if the Democrats take over, they've seen the direction of travel of the Democrats in America in terms of their increasing hostility towards Israel, um, which they they felt would only get worse. And the the members of the administration wanted to do everything they could to help solidify Israel's position and solve the problem it faces here uh, in during President Trump's terms. And that's what they've set out to do. So you're right, I think, in your assessment of the reason why it's four years from now. Um, 
but the other point is, I'll pick you up on one point that you use the word okay. annexation, and it, it's commonly used, people talk about annexation, but it's actually, you're only annexing territory if you're annexing someone else's territory, but I go back to what I said before, that that I, I consider this to be Israel's territory, yeah. and I know that's disputed, but... But I think that's one for it. There I am being uh, bashed over the head by the media (laughs) that I have read and not realising the potency of the words, despite my position. That happens a a bit. Happens a lot to all of us. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, I think, you know, the fact is that that Israel can now, if you want to use the word annex, can now annex. Not anymore. Exercise exercise sovereignty in uh, in the areas that that the peace proposal allocated as being permanent Israel areas of Israeli sovereignty and it can now assume sovereignty from any time really over that although I think the Americans have suggested that shouldn't happen until the the next Israeli election is done now whether there's going to be one after that because Israelis seem to love democracy so much they're constantly having elections um, but and, and then after that within four years or after four years they can then um, go ahead and exercise sovereignty over whatever other areas they think necessary for their security. Richard, in the wake of the assassination of Soleimani, have we now seen the end of Iran's retaliation, or do you think there is more to come from the Islamic Republic? Well, first thing I'd say is I think that the killing of Soleimani was um, absolutely the right move for President Trump to have made in response to a significant Iranian aggression, uh, including crossing red lines um, in, in which he uh, he and his proxies specifically targeted Americans, um, but of course we know he's been guilty of of atrocities around the world against British Americans, against Israelis, against people from many many different countries for many many years, and he he personally um, directed a campaign of killings of British soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, mainly in Iraq, in which. We don't know how many, but certainly tens, maybe hundreds even, of British soldiers were killed by his uh, proxies, the operators that were working on his behalf and armed by him. And in fact, when I was working in the Cabinet Office, one of the, um, one of the things I had to do was to put together an intelligence case against him and his operation with a view to doing something about it at the time, some military action against Soleimani at the time by the UK. Um, but I think the, the, the American attack against Soleimani really wrong-footed the Iranians. They were not expecting that. Um, they've, for too long, really for, ever since the Islamic Revolution, they have been free, really, to carry out attacks against the West without any real fear of retaliation from the West. The response has always been to try and appease them. Well, they met their match in President Trump when he killed the, the, the main architect of their, their imperial aggression around the world. Um, and they obviously carried out a form of response which was to carry out rocket attacks against and and, uh, other missile attacks against uh, the uh, airbase in Iraq I think that was calculated deliberately not to provoke the Americans further in other words they they did not plan to kill American troops in that counter-attack which does beg the question as you've asked as to whether that was the end of it um, and I don't think we can be sure that it was, but they, they now are much more cautious mm. about their dealing with America while Trump is the president because um, all of their calculations up until now have been based on the fact that the Americans will not retaliate. Well, now they've seen that America will retaliate. 
and so they might be a little bit more circumspect in considering whether there's going to be any more uh, retaliation for the killing of Soleimani. Because Iran and its proxies have rockets pointed at Israel north and south, in Lebanon, in Syria, and even over a couple of borders into Yemen. Um, a question that Israel preemptively strikes these places from time to time. Sometimes it makes news, sometimes it doesn't. How can Israel, do you think, ensure it's not dragged into a regional war, for example, if it does act against those Yemen rockets pointing this way? I think the, the, the most effective way of preventing a serious Middle Eastern war in which Israel is forced to attack the rockets in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, wherever the Iranians have rockets targeting Israel, is for the is for the civilized world, the West, the United States of America, Europe, um, responsible Arab countries, to to put as much pressure as they can and to form a united front against Iran, which hasn't been happening so far. Britain and America, to an extent, have acted in unison over Iran to, a, to an extent but not as much as they should have done other EU countries have, have failed to fall in line with America against Iran uh, and I think that is a problem but the only way really to, um, to, to deter Iran I think is, is to have a united front against it and that's what should be happening because if um, these rockets are fired from Lebanon, particularly Lebanon where there's 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel or more even some of which are precision-guided missiles, and the Iranians want to bring more in there. Israel will um, have to carry out a car carpet bombardment of southern Lebanon, which will result, with the best will in the world to prevent it by the Israelis, will result in the deaths of large numbers of civilians in southern Lebanon. Um, Israel will, of course, be severely criticised for that, but it will have no choice if it, ha if it is to deal with these rockets. It won't be able to deal with them purely with defensive systems. It will have to carry out offensive airstrikes. Colonel Richard Kemp here in Tel Aviv, Israel. Thank you very much indeed as always. A great pleasure. I hope to see you again soon, either here in Israel or in the UK or somewhere around the world. But a real pleasure. Thank you.